0: Hi, I'm Melina Morrison, CEO of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals. Cooperative farming is designed to help farmers, fishers and foresters to develop and grow their new farming cooperatives. Today, Pete Lewis talks to Roger Long. He's the colourful chairman of the Limestone Coast Fishermen's Cooperative. The Limestone Coast in South Australia is a beautiful part of the world with seven fishing ports supporting the small communities that live there. The industry is made up of fishing licences held by local lobster fishermen and their families. This idyllic world faced a massive threat, as Roger explains.
1: The sub-rock lobster industry was going down a path, we thought, that uh, taking getting taken over by corporate and rationalisation. And uh, we thought, and there was little uh, factory organisations that so were getting squeezed out, a lot of local little businesses doing what we're doing now, um, couldn't keep up with the big players, and we could see that uh, down the track uh, there would be a stage.
0: This is a story of true cooperation. You'll hear how the Geraldton Fishermen's Cooperative of Western Australia, despite sharing essentially the same commodity and the same market, jumped in to help and effectively mentor the fishermen into a new start that is now the Limestone Coast Fishermen's Cooperative. Here's our host, renowned agricultural journalist Pete Lewis, with this fascinating story. Enjoy.
2: And now we're joined by a fisher and leader of one of the most innovative cooperatives in the country. The Limestone Coast Fishermen's Co-op is locally owned and operated by 29 fishing families in South Australia. Just two years old, it started out of necessity and has grown to become a very important part of its local community. Roger Long is the chairman and he has a pretty interesting backstory about how he got into all this. Roger, you're a first generation fisher and you virtually fell into this on a footy field.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right, Peter. I was fortunate, I suppose. It it really changed my life. I um, moved down to a a small country town football side very close to a couple of fishing ports and uh, was lucky enough to land a job on a boat. The skipper of that boat helped me out immensely um, with experience and all types of stuff to do with the industry and along the way I bought a few pots to uh, oh, I suppose increase my pay packet and I fished with him for a couple of years and then um, was offered another job on another boat by a, a very large fishing family down here who I owe a lot to and I bought some more pots and went fishing with that family for a few more years until I was able to reach in to the industry and get myself into a position where I could buy a few more pots and get my own licence. So I oh, owe a lot to football on them two families that took me on, I suppose. A big change from coming out of the city into a country town and having that opportunity to go fishing now.
2: Now, I understand your family lost their property during the ash wednesday bushfires tell us a little bit about how that affected your outlook and uh, i guess particularly your resilience and your, your ability to bounce back
1: yeah um it was a family business property um at a little place called mount birth in the pines my father was a log haulier that got burnt to the ground in ash wednesday apart from just us obviously there was huge farming devastation and, and other business devastation around the place and the uh, impact that had on the region was massive and uh, to see the way that everybody went around building it and getting back on their feet was huge you know backs to the wall sort of stuff and uh, yeah everybody being so resilient just just kept plodding away and, and now you wouldn't even know it ever happened and so I suppose there's still people still hurting from it but there was um, it certainly could cause big change but here we are today sort of thing.
2: Well, Roger, having covered those Ash Wednesday bushfires in South Australia, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I guess last summer must have brought back some, uh, some really vivid memories and experiences uh, for you as uh, as bushfires raged in, in other parts, uh, very close to uh, where you are, but uh, in other parts of the country quite severely.
1: Yeah, it certainly, I suppose, brings back memories and uh, it helps you understand what them people are going through. There's nothing good about it. I suppose, except for the regeneration of the, of the natural scrub. But, you know, all you can do is hope that they can all come back out of it and get over the, the travesty that they had. It's never a good thing, but I'm sure, you know, the tough Aussie battler will manage to come out of it and uh, go forward from there.
2: Well, it's often said pressure makes diamonds. The co-op <laughs> that you're involved in was started by fishermen from across the Limestone Coast in the southeast of South Australia, Taking collaboration not often seen in the industry because you're in an industry of, I guess, largely rugged individualists and uh, people who want to go their own way quite literally and need to. Tell us uh, what your co op does and, and why did it start?
1: So, our co op is a live exporter of the Southern Rock lobster. We buy our craze off our membership and some outside craze if they want to sell into us. We gather all our fish and tank them in holding facility, live holding facilities in the factories, where they'll be packed and exported mainly to China. There is a bit goes to local market, but mainly China is the is our major market. How it was established? The sub rock lobster industry was going down a path we thought that um, was uh, taking, getting taken over by corporate and rationalisation. We thought and there was little factory organisations that were getting squeezed out. A lot of local little businesses doing what we're doing now couldn't keep up with the big players. And we could see that down the track, there would be a stage where it was only going to be one or two processes um, involved in the industry where they could dictate a major price to us so um a few guys got the heads together and and there was much talk around the industry but a few people took it on board and started the ball rolling for that reason just to see if we could take back some ownership of uh for you know smaller generational families to hold on and secure their their livelihood within the industry
2: At, at the halfway mark of this series cooperative conversations We've noticed that so many co-ops, the one thing in, they have in common is that they've grown out of adversity and some form of crisis within their own industry. How do you think adversity in those tough times have helped strengthening, Helped strengthen your co-op?
1: Probably not so much adversity, but necessity, I think, was something for us. And um, Fishman understood sort of something needed to be done which made it a lot easier to to form obviously the COVID deal that's going on now has uh, seemed to create more interest in what we're doing to uh, maybe come in under our umbrella with i suppose numbers uh, the security of numbers together and open and transparency that we provide to all the fishermen so i think more so necessity was the reason we got it going not adversity and that open and transparency thing is what's sort of driving it at the moment with this covid time on
2: now one of, the, one of the other universal themes i think that we've certainly discussed over the past few episodes is how so many cooperatives rely on the experience the expertise and the encouragement of other cooperatives now in your case it was the um, it was the Geraldton fishermen's co-op on that uh, right on the other side of the country over there in WA. Now, you you might have thought, since you were both in the same game and shifting the same commodity, that that competition might have ruled over that. How how did that sort of cooperation and that partnership and uh, that mentorship, how did that happen?
1: Yeah, well, it's been massive. Um, So there was a small group of guys that decided, I suppose, to start the ball rolling and the only way we could see forward was um we'd been doing a fair bit of investigation into what the cop was doing over there and how they're running so we made contact with uh, the ceo then which was wayne hosking he asked us to come over was more than open arm to um, have us go over there and have a talk about what co-ops are all about and what they um what they're all about obviously they're a great success and uh I must admit, the four of us, the first day we, went, we there, went there for two days' meetings and the first day we sort of walked out of there with the daunting thing, looking at the way they were set up and everything and, go, oh, how are we ever going to do this? The next day at meetings, Wayne threw us a bit of a lifeline of what they might be able to do and how they can help us get established and start and help us down the track and and also working on that principle of collaboration between the co-ops and there have been nothing better than fantastic for us. They've held out olive branches everywhere, I suppose, to give us a hand, which has been a, and, and they're a big part of our story too, yep.
2: Well, that's, that's, that's a great example of, uh, of cooperation in action, I guess, even within the same industry. Now, you've said that forming the co-op keeps other competitors honest because the money goes back to the fishers. How does this
1: work? What's the
2: structure of the co-op in that sense?
1: Yeah, so we're 100% owned by fishermen. There's no outside investment at all. So anything that it's made over and above or profit after running of the factory will be returned to the fishermen. Now, there's no in, no outside investment. The money doesn't go anywhere else. It stays in our local communities. And the structure of the whole setup is we've got six fishermen board members, two independents, and managers after that that oversee the whole process. They, between them all, have got a huge amount of input into it but um, we're also very well aware that we listen to our members. We're guided by our members a lot so it's a very close-knit team and that's including the members. The members are always about, always talking about things and and that's the way we like it.
2: You've indicated that uh, obviously at start-up point everything seemed a bit daunting. you made the trip to Geraldton and made some linkages there. But in terms of, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, how did you go about, you know, drawing up the constitution, the rules, the regulations, and the important two-way uh, relationship between the members, the fishers, and the board?
1: So when we come back from Fremantle, we held a meeting of uh, to all fishers along the coast to see who might have been interested in to give them the news of what we'd sort of found and discovered while we we're away and we got a interest from about 15 guys straight up straight up from that and with that in mind what we did we got Matt Rudder, uh, Basil Enzo and I think it was Brian Key come across and address them, that group and sort of let them know what we were what they'd done and to give confidence to these guys that were thinking about becoming members so after after that it was I suppose knuckled down. We had enough numbers to sort of make a start as far as establishing the co-op. And we were lucky enough to get a uh, $5,000 grant from Farming Together. And we employed a lady called Claire Fountain with that in that process. And Claire was fantastic. And, well, she took half a dozen fishermen. that We'd, we'd formed a steering committee to try and uh, keep the ball rolling. She took those half a dozen fishermen and started to educate them what it was all about, to write constitutions and and rules and regulations for governance and everything like that. Once again, the GFC were hugely part of that. They shared their constitution and their rules and that with us so we could take out the bits that we thought we needed and, and so we run very, very similar rules to what they do. And also we held a lot of meetings with members that had come on board and we bounced everything off the whole group. So it was very open and 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 a lot of people had input into how we wanted to make it look and the security of the whole system.
2: So you really got a flying start uh, in that regard. But I guess, did, did you find it difficult convincing enough fishers to, to get behind this and give you the critical mass that you really needed to, uh,
1: to get it up and running? Having the GFC on board with it, gave a lot of lot of confidence to a lot of the fishermen that come on board early in the piece. It's always going to be hard to tell any fisherman anything. Everybody's very strong-willed and got their own ideas and a lot of stuck in their ways and happy the way everything's going. But for the, um, I suppose, we we tried to educate what we thought was going to be a good thing and had the Geraldton um, the guys in behind us focusing on a story to tell all the fishermen of how we want to do it, why we want to do it, and we need you guys to be part of it, otherwise it's just not going to get off the ground. And truly saying that if we can't do it now, we don't think anybody will be able to do it in the future. Sort of now was the time to do it.
2: And that obviously gave them sufficient confidence that you had the foundations in place to really set sail, if you like, and then and then prove it through practice. They could see that they were going to have a say, they were going to be listened to, and that, you know, that cooperative approach was really in their best interest as well as to the wider cooperative's interest.
1: Yeah, it's huge. Um, Claire come across a couple of times. I think she was living in Bendigo at the time and she come across a couple of times and we had working groups where we all met together and she put us through questionnaires and made us write all different stories and scenarios down, and then we'd put them all up on boards and have a look at them. And and, uh, I think that doing it that way gave everybody such ownership in what we were doing. Uh, And then, of course, them guys are going away and telling and advertising the fact that, you know, you have got a say in it, you can do what you want to do, and and being part of it and, and actually have an ownership in it was what kept everything ticking along. And
2: you're still growing. Uh, you, you're still growing your membership and fielding, as I understand, plenty of inquiries from, from other fishers who, who, who want to get on board as well. Why, why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, well, actually, we, I just got a phone call before we went on air. We've actually got number 30 today, so uh, that's four or five since we finished fishing this year, uh, members. I think created a lot of conversation up and down the coast And I think a lot of people really did sort of sit back last season, having a look at how we'd go and whether we could produce and do what we would say we were going to do. And although it's very young business, we did get over a fair few hurdles, especially with the COVID thing at the end. We got over a lot of hurdles and we've delivered on a couple of promises, like building the factory up, the the new factory up the coast and things like that. So I think that's sort of instilled a fair bit of confidence in Um, what the fishermen may have been thinking the 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 so-called fence hitters that just didn't know whether they should or shouldn't and obviously the guys that were involved for this last season have been uh, fantastic and uh, they've been going out selling selling the the story um, as much as they can so I think it's just um, something that I hope that has a snowball effect and certainly after this year you can see that the the model works and and that that tells a story in itself and I think that the fishermen like the, are starting to get the idea that being all together, like the numbers, and the security and the numbers is a good thing.
0: We're talking with Pete Lewis and Roger Long, the chairman of the Limestone Coast Fishermen's Cooperative, as we hear the true power of working together for local communities and families under threat from big business. Don't forget you can watch these conversations as videos on our website as the Cooperative Farming podcast series continues.
2: And I guess uh, through this whole pandemic, as we've seen right across agriculture and indeed right across a lot of business generally in Australia, the pandemic has really shown that there is safety in numbers, and uh, that's really the, the motivating force behind cooperatives right over right around the country, and clearly in your industry. How, how has 2020 and COVID-19 you know affected fishing? and uh and exports
1: yeah well it's uh, <laughs> i'm glad it didn't happen uh, last year that's for sure our season runs from 1st of october through till the next may so a lot of our fishes were actually a fair way through their quota um, when the covid hit but what a lot of people don't understand and and we didn't see here so much unless you're involved was The Chinese market shut down overnight, so there was no warning or no anything. There was no gradual, I suppose, onset of it. It was just phone call overnight. That's it. We don't want any more fish. Whatever you've got in your tanks, you're sort of stuck with. Uh, So that was a challenge in itself. We had to sell our fish locally, which is a big volume of fish for the local market to soak up. So that was a challenge in itself. And then there was no markets at all really after that. Um, and as, as Australia become infected with COVID too, that took that market away. So, But getting into the year a bit further, we got to about middle of April and the, we did get a little bit of a lifeline from China and we managed to get a few fishermen back fishing that finished off their quotas. But it was at a little bit lesser price. It wasn't too bad, but it was a little bit uh, lesser price. But then we're still left with the uncertainty of what's going on this year we've been chasing up flights and logistics of how if we can sell craze into China, how we do how we go about it. Because as you know, like uh, Melbourne is suffering at the moment and Sydney's sort of just teetering along. So they're our major markets in Australia. And if if they're not there and we and we're struggling, well, the flights are less than half going into China, it really restricts on what days we can export. Uh, and when so whether the Chinese decide to manipulate the price or do whatever with that we don't know but it's a bit of an unforeseen but we're certainly working hard to make sure that we get the best return for our fishermen and that's all we can do as a co-op and we've we've been having meetings a lot and we we keep on putting that across to our fishermen like this is what it could look like we're going to try our best to get the best return we can for you And and they believe in that. They they, they trust in that. So uh, that's all we can do.
2: And look, having spoken to the Geraldton Fishers early in this series, we know that they've made particular uh, uh, representations uh, to state and federal politicians to really keep those uh, international transport links and logistics open for this very reason, because you've got an extraordinarily valuable commodity, an extraordinarily perishable one, Uh, when it's live and you know the reliability of those connections to market are going to
1: be really fundamental to the way you can ride this through oh yes for sure and there's obviously a lot of phone calls going around and between us and the gfc guys and and other processes here we're um, we're all trying to um just shore up as good a deal as we can get and it'll be a bit of a suck it and see sort of thing i think it, it's just something we're going to have to wing our way through a bit um it's going to be a lot of stop, st- stop start fishing because we did we, we just won't be able to get the volumes out the door so the, the seasonal the season has actually been extended for two weeks we start two weeks earlier this year and that main reason is to help us spread our catch out over over a longer period so hopefully that'll give us a chance to be able to Take the craze from the fishermen and get them over over to our markets all around the world.
2: Roger, it's fair to say that many co-ops succeed or fail because of the sweat equity that's been involved in it. What social value in the southeast of South Australia is created through your cooperative and and how do you think it impacts on those small communities?
1: Oh, the sweat equity, our, uh, yeah, it's been huge. That our members of done an amazing job with volunteering their time and effort and the the co-op just wouldn't have succeeded without it there's no no doubt about that as far as the social and the economic value to the immediate area because investment stays in the local areas in the local communities and because of that you see the expenditure go here and not go away and not go out of our state not go out of our country so we think that benefits the communities also um with what we're doing we're employing another 30 people in the area um so that that's a that's a good thing for our community and and apart from that the social benefits are uh, it's certainly bringing fishermen together it's a really Nearly not a footy club, but it's getting to that stage where everybody enjoys each other's company and listen to the the good and the bad things and nutting it all out together. And I suppose it's it's just a case of um, you know we try to run a, a bit of a happy family type situation uh, involving all parts of the family too, not just the fishermen.
2: Now you're obviously sold on this concept, sold us and sold on this diet, dear, and sold on this structure. What do you tell? Other fishers, other farmers, about what is intrinsically significant, important and sustainable about the cooperative approach as opposed to any other type of business structure and company
1: structure. It's just that safety in numbers, I think. And the and the fact that you can if you've got a problem you can deal with it and you can have your say in it and in the way you go about dealing with it. It's something that I think you you find more solutions to the to the job because it's not you by yourself or and you're not receiving the right information. Everything's really open and transparent. So it, it's just something that you don't sort of wake up and, oh, that's happened. You're well aware of what's going on around you and if there's any trouble or any good, you know what's going on. And, and being part of that is is something that just, it's got to be a great thing for any sort of confidence in an industry.
2: Now, two years in, are there, have there been any obvious Stumbling blocks or potential problems from this kind of structure, though.
1: Not really, not not really problems or as such. It's just mainly mainly raising your capital and finding a way of building infrastructure and things like that, which is a hard part. People don't sort of want to look at you too much. We we were lucky enough to get a small money firm that would look after us, but and they've done a fantastic job. They've obviously got fairly hard terms on on which we're doing. But at the moment we're looking at after two years being established, we're finally getting some sort of traction with bigger banks and things like that, which we're we're looking to refinance through, which would give us a huge, huge lift in what we're doing as well.
2: Has it been a matter of explaining to them the fishing literacy and indeed the cooperative literacy that that those financial institutions may not have necessarily had or thought about terribly much?
1: Uh, Everywhere we went is, oh, we've never dealt with the co-op sort of thing. So as much as you can explain it and really say, well, have a look at what the Geraldton boys do, the the, uh, financial institutions really found it hard to, I suppose, grasp hold of what we were doing. But now that they've sort of seen that we're away and and some of the figures we turned over, all of a sudden they become interest. It's rather annoying that you can't get that leg in at the start. um, we were very fortunate to be helped out by people to get us going and uh, not having that backup or being able to reach any finance of really any sort was a real struggling point in the whole thing.
2: Well, if you yeah, if you've had some light bulb moments with uh, finance uh, with the financial sector, that's probably uh, a lesson or two that you could share with other co-ops because they're all hunting and gathering for the same kind of relationship yeah. and the same kind of understanding. Now, as you as you indicated a little earlier, you are on the cusp of uh, another significant step in the life of this relatively young cooperative. You're days away from completing a large factory in Beachport here in South Australia, which will see the co-op employ, as you said, around 30 people across its two holding facilities. That's a really significant step. How did it come about?
1: Yeah, well, after our first year was run with one factory with trucks running to the northernmost part of the coast, our factory, first factory was situated probably at the most southern port. And just listening to the fishermen and the way we can improve our quality, and logistics as far as running trucks, it, we, we thought it'd be a great idea to put a factory up at Beachport. It also tells a story and shows that the community that we want to be part of that and not not take factories away from the little communities, actually put factories there. Like I said, the quality side of things help make the decision and the, the trucking. Um, instead of five hours in a truck back down to the Southern port, it's only going to be minimal. The trucks can do short journeys into that factory. As far as how it come about, we've got a very smart secretary I think you're talking to later on. He chased up a PERSA Regional Growth Fund grant, and we were lucky enough after our second year to be qualified for it. And we were lucky enough to receive it as well. So that was a huge boost for us to be able to go up north and start to build that facility, like you said, which is very close to being finished, and it's uh, very exciting, very exciting.
2: That's fantastic. Yes, we will be speaking to Justin Phillips from the uh, Limestone Cooperative in our roundtable discussion uh, a little later this evening, so uh, stay tuned for that. Now, what other ways are you looking to innovate, Roger? There's obviously uh, the more you undertake, the more you uh, believe you need to undertake. Uh, What's the next challenge the next uh, bright idea that you're working towards
1: well i suppose it uh, it'll depend a fair bit on the membership and what we need to do as far as growing facilities but there's always plenty of room for improving tanks and for quality issues and and ways to run your factories more efficiently and trucks and things like that so It'll be mainly improvement, teaching staff, schooling staff up, and we've got to buy a few more trucks now. So just uh, investment mainly to make the process easier.
2: And as you indicated, as much of that money that you that you generate and uh, need to spend on your business, you want to try and do that as much as possible uh, where you live and uh, among your, your own people.
1: Yes, yeah, so, um, and we're forever trying to look after our local people uh, and we've made a specific plan for that um, we want to help out in any way we can and, and spend our money here so if, it, if we can't get it locally unfortunately you can't get everything locally but if we can't we have to outsource it somewhere else but we've certainly formed good partnerships with a lot of the local businesses around that are helping us out as well.
2: Roger I guess probably as we swing into the home stretch from your point of view, setting it up, all the work that was required, the, you know, convincing your colleagues in the industry uh, to get involved, growing the thing, what's the one big lesson that you've learned uh, along the way that you would reckon that would help inform our audience, which may be looking at doing much the same sort of thing uh, that you did a couple of years back? What's what's the biggest lesson you've learned in that time, do you think?
1: For me, I suppose it was hard, but it works. So as you as you go along and you build the co-op itself and you build relationships with the people that are coming in and, and joining the co-op and all that that gives you a lot of satisfaction and teammanship of what goes on. But I suppose if anybody was going to start one and, and hopefully there will be, um, it's just yeah you've just got to stick at it. it. It seems a long way, but there's certainly it works. We've proved our model works, and I'm sure there's a co-op model that can work for other people too. And we're we're confident that we've got the right model working, and I think, yeah, it's just stick at it. Keep punching, I suppose you'd call it.
2: And in that sense, I guess it's a lot like footy, Roger. (laughs) It's important to be part of the team, and you can't always kick the goals you want uh, when you want, but uh, if you stick together as a team and work through them. Generally speaking, things... uh, things come good are you still tied up in footy in any
1: significant way at all are you coaching or are you I did coach for a while but that was a fair while ago <laughs> I'd like to be that age again Uh no I'm just on a grounds committee now there's a heap of us old ex-footballers that meet at the football ground on a Friday and get the oval ready and the club rooms ready for a, a game on Saturday and enjoy a couple of beers after but um, no, that yeah, football has been certainly great. I miss it, I wish I was young enough to still play it. But like you said though, the, the team thing does work and, and it's certainly working for our co-op. There's no doubt about that.
2: Look, thank you very much again, Roger. That was fantastic for your, uh, for your insights into the journey so far for the Limestone Coast Fishers. It's been fascinating how you've reached out and had such a great cooperative relationship with your fellow fishers from, uh, from WA, from Geraldton there. So it's been a really interesting chat and we really appreciate it.
0: I hope you enjoyed this story of limestone, a tale of little fish swimming together to become bigger. It inspires me to see a business story that shows that cooperation can be as powerful as competition. After this interview, we did a roundtable to explore how small producers can create market power by working together. We got some great perspectives from cooperators doing just that. Here's a taste from Daniel Adams, the CEO of the Clarence River Cooperative. What I've seen is that the industry through various methods, particularly through government changes, has actually moved away from being that cottage-based industry and changed more to an investor environment. So you are actually seeing that generational family-orientated um, fisher moving away from the industry. You know, the cooperative in so many ways has actually tried to cover the tracks, I guess, in the changes to the industry a bit, soften the blow, and pulled everything together to make it that little bit more um, valuable to become part of a, a cooperative. You can watch this video by going to our website, co-opfarming.coop. To listen to more inspiring stories of farmers succeeding and growing together, subscribe to our podcast series and don't forget to rate us. In our next podcast, we talk with Stephen Tandy, Chair of Oz Group, a Coffs Harbour-based cooperative who are passionate about providing Australia with the freshest blueberries, blackberries and raspberries through sustainable farming. Remember, in a challenging world, we're all better together. I'm Melina Morrison. Thanks for listening.